you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 20. If we haven't met, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And hello to everybody who is watching online, as well as all of you who are joining us at our 1045, soon to be 11 o'clock service starting in August. We're in part two of this uh, story. And I'm going to unpack in just a little bit what we're going to be learning. It's going to be a really exciting morning. But I've entitled this message this morning, Does Anyone Actually Care? Does Anyone Actually Care? And as I was thinking about that, I thought about our lives. And each and every one of us in here represent a life. Many of us represent families. And there are so many different stories that are happening in this room. And so often, we can feel so much burden. I don't know if you've noticed, life can be very burdensome sometimes. And sometimes it can feel like we're completely on our own. I was thinking about our our students and our young adults. And one of the great questions as you start that stage of life is, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Who are you going to marry? What calling are you going to step into? Are you going to get married? All of these questions. And as you start that journey, it can feel really overwhelming, and it genuinely can feel like that you're on your own. It's like, man, I wish somebody would provide a concierge service that would guide me through these really important decisions. I know for, for Katie and myself, as we uh, are in this parenting journey, and we're very blessed with a great support system, but sometimes we can feel like, when is the second shift coming? <laughs> and then you realize, like, like, we are also the second shift as well as the first shift. And I'm also working the weekends as well. And that's how I can feel. All the parents are laughing, just sadly. That's, that's all the, the only laughter is coming from them. But, but there are, of course, also in our, uh, in our church, many people who are walking through health issues. And we love doctors and we love nurses, but sometimes even navigating through health issues, it can feel like we're on our own. We're trying to advocate for ourselves. And then this one is one that we all can feel, uh, that prices everywhere are going up. And it feels like no one is coming up with the great idea, let's just, let's just lower prices. Let's like have things cost less. That would be a really good idea. And so it can feel like there are all of these burdens that we have, and no one's there to carry them. And so we're going to open with one of my favorite invitations from Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 11. You can look on the screen, and it says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus, he acknowledges that life is burdensome. He acknowledges that each and every single one of us carry heavy responsibilities and a lot of to-dos. And what's interesting is if you notice, Jesus actually says that he has a burden, that he has a yoke for us. So he's saying, following me doesn't mean we can just do nothing, that we do participate as we walk with Jesus, but he says that my yoke, unlike other yokes, is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't heap obligations on us, heap burdens on us. He invites us into a life of rest where he walks with us and shoulders the burden alongside of us. 
And what we need to realize, even as we start off this service, and I really pray this gets deep down in every single person here, every single person online, is that Jesus is more committed to us than we are to him. That Jesus always does the heavy lifting in our relationship and that whatever we're walking through, Jesus is walking with us and he is committed to seeing us through. And we gotta understand that as we dive in and I'm gonna share with us four ways in the story today that Jesus is committed to serving us whatever we're walking through. Now a quick recap, last week we met three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They live in a town called Bethany. Everybody say Bethany. Bethany, it's two miles outside of Jerusalem. And the news that we received last week is that Lazarus was deeply ill. Now Jesus, he loved this this sibling group, these brothers and sisters. He spent time with them. Uh, He often stayed with them when he was in Jerusalem. So he had this deep love and affection for them, so much so that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, who was about a day's journey away, and he said, the one that you love, Lazarus, is sick. And we learn that although Jesus loved Lazarus, that he actually delayed, that he didn't come directly to Lazarus, but he waited two days, then he went there, and so by the time he had arrived in Bethany, four days later, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And so this is where we're going to begin this story, starting in verse 20. We read this last week, but this is going to be a little bit to just catch us up. But look at verse 20 of John chapter 11 with me. And it says this, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha answered, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, I know we'll see him again when we die. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. So Jesus, he makes two promises to her. He says that for everyone who believes in him, that we will, in fact, rise again on the last day, that we will have new bodies in the new heaven and the new earth, and that death is not the end of the story, but that Jesus is going to bring us back to life. But he also says that because he is the resurrection and the life, that resurrection power is available right here, right now, and that miracles can happen. So this is the promise that Jesus makes. And I want you to note that Jesus takes the time to minister and to have this conversation specifically with Martha. Now, let's go to verse 28. This is new. We haven't read this yet, and we didn't read this last week. So here it goes. Verse 28, after Martha had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So first, Jesus ministers to Martha, and then he calls for and asks Mary to come. And so he and Mary have this moment where they share this moment together where he ministers to her. And what I want to write to us to write down here, the first way that Jesus serves us, and this is so important for us to realize, is that Jesus ministers specifically to us. Jesus ministers specifically to us. Now remember, last week we learned that Jesus didn't abide by Mary and Martha's timetable. In other words, they wanted him to come way, way before he actually showed up. And in the same way, for some of us in this room, we have been praying and we have been hoping that God would answer a prayer of ours. And maybe even in here, we're feeling like because God's not answering the prayer, that that he doesn't love us, he doesn't care about us, and we feel abandoned by him. But I think it's so important to note that right here, Jesus does take the time to minister specifically to Martha and then to call Mary and say, I want to talk to you as well. If you're in here, Jesus knows you and he cares about you. And if you're struggling with doubt, he wants to minister to you. If you're struggling with a specific financial need or a health need, he wants to minister to you. If you're struggling with anxiety, with depression, with discouragement, he wants to minister specifically to you right where you're at. It may not look like how you expect it to look. It didn't look like it for Mary and Martha, but Jesus wants to draw near and meet you where you're at. One of my favorite themes as you start to read through the Bible and read through Scripture is you start to see this repeated phrase in the Gospels, in the story of Jesus, that Jesus has compassion on people. We read over and over again that Jesus sees people in need and he has compassion on them. One of my favorite stories, there's two blind men and they live around Jericho. And they hear that Jesus is coming. And when they hear Jesus is coming, they know that he has the power to heal. And so they start to cry out to him and they say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and they're crying out so loud. They're being so, so, so boisterous that people start to actually rebuke them and start to say, hey, shut up. You're, you're like causing a scene here. But Jesus hears them. He sees them. And what the scripture says in Matthew 20, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to read it and jot it down later, it says that he has compassion on them and he restores their sight. So Jesus, he sees you, whatever you're walking through right now. Now, maybe you're hearing that and and you want to believe it. Maybe you can believe that he has compassion for the other people in this room, the other people online, but you're having trouble believing it for yourself. And I want to encourage us that there's some ways that Jesus ministers to us that sometimes we miss because they are supernatural, but they seem very normal so we can take them for granted. When we pray and God gives us strength through that prayer, 
That's Jesus ministering to us. Right now, as we study the word, we believe that God is building us up in our spirits simply by us reading the word and being fed the word of God. When you gather together with other Christians and you pray for each other and you talk about Jesus and you share your hearts and share your lives together, God is moving in a unique way through that and he's ministering to you through that. Even just the daily bread, the daily needs that Jesus provides for us, he's ministering to us through that. So sometimes the most normal things are actually the way that God is moving in our lives. But God can also move through supernatural means, right? Like there are times when a miraculous prayer gets answered. There are times when we do not know what to do. And someone comes to us and shares a a word from God and it leads us down a direction. There are times when a healing happens and so God can do that either way. Now there's one more point of application here. If Jesus ministers specifically to us, then we are the hands and feet of Jesus, we need to be ministering to our community. And so that, that's why it's an honor to partner with, with ministries like Serene Harbor and ministries like Essential Pregnancy Center, that there are women in our community that need help. And, and these ministries are doing an incredible job serving them. And so well, we're grateful even to have them out in the commons and to be able to, to offer a spotlight to them uh, so that as a church, we're taking care of the ministries of our community as well. Okay, let's keep reading. So, Jesus has taken time to serve Mary and Martha, and now let's look at verse 28. Actually, excuse me, look at verse 33. Verse 33 of John 11 says this, When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid Lazarus? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Now, I want us to share a little bit of historical context with us so we can learn a little bit more about what's happening here. When you and I go to a funeral or a memorial service, in our culture, it is proper to grieve in a very reserved way. So a way that you would honor someone who's deceased is by crying and shedding a tear, but probably the most we're going to do is take out a Kleenex and and blow our nose. That's the most noise we're going to make. Not so in the Jewish culture. Look at this on the screen. It says this. uh, This is what uh, William Barclay says. He talks about uh, the, the context, and he says, we must remember this would have been no gentle shedding of tears. It would be almost hysterical wailing and shrieking. For it was the Jewish point of view that the more unrestrained the weeping, the more honor it paid to the dead. So you can picture this scene, and you could picture that it's very noisy. There's a lot going on. There's this like mass, almost hysteria as they're crying and as they're weeping over Lazarus. Now, one more thing that I want you to know. This is from D.A. Carson, and it says this, that Jewish funeral custom dictated that even a poor family was expected to hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman. 
And this family was anything but poor. And so not only did you have your friends mourning, but you hired more people to beef out the crowd in order to mourn. Now, here's how I thought about this. Like for me, I'm not a super emotional person. Or at least I have emotions, I don't display them externally. And so I don't cry very much. Uh, The the last time I cried was two months ago uh, when my son Malachi was born. Probably the last time I cried before that was two years ago when my son Isaiah was born. Like, like that's about what it takes to get me to cry. Some of you guys, and, and I don't in any way mean this as making fun, like this is a beautiful thing. Some of you, God has wired you to display emotion a little bit easier. And so some of you, when you walk in here, like the first note of the keyboard, and you're just weeping. You're just like, God, you're so good. I'm crying. I'm, I'm, I'm just going for it. And, and again, I'm not making fun. That is a beautiful thing, and that's a way God has wired you. And in a lot of ways, that's an opportunity that God has used where you can be in touch with him and connect with him through emotions. And also, if you were born 2,000 years ago, you could have made serious cash as a professional <laughs> whaler at a wedding, like at a funeral. That would have been, like, maybe you're born at the wrong time. <laughs> so what we see here is that there is this, this great hysteria that's happening. There's great weeping. And Jesus, it says in the scripture in verse 33, that he is deeply moved and troubled. Now, when I first read deeply moved and troubled, the original thought that I had was that that meant that he had compassion. Remember, we talked earlier that he had compassion. And that's what I thought it meant. But I started to dig down deep into the original meaning of the word. And I always say, I don't know Greek, but I do know Google. And so I looked up the word, and this is what I discovered. Here it is. By the way, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. You can pronounce it in your brain however you'd like to. But what it means, this word deeply troubled, it actually means to snort, to scold, to express indignant displeasure with someone. So in other words, it's not as much to say that Jesus had compassion in this moment, but Jesus was actually angry in this moment. The other times when it's used, Jesus fiercely warned someone about someone. He sternly charged them. And so there's this idea of a, of a fierceness and, and almost an anger that, that comes out here. And so here's the question. What was Jesus angry about? But because some people would say, man, maybe he was angry at Mary and Martha. He was mad at them because they didn't have faith. They should have believed more. And there are times in the Gospels where Jesus is disappointed at his disciples' lack of faith. That he's like, man, you got to believe in my power. But, but I never see in the Gospels that Jesus is angry at someone for their lack of faith. And so many uh, commentators, and what I believe is this, that Jesus, when he was faced with the reality of death, he got angry. Now remember, Jesus created the entire world. God, through Jesus, spoke the world into existence. And so he knows how it's supposed to be. And so when he looks out at the world and he sees sin and he sees brokenness and he sees pain and he sees disease and he sees death, he remembers and he thinks, this is not how I created it to be. This isn't how it's supposed to be at all. And when he was faced with this reality, looking at Lazarus, he was angry. There's a verse that can kind of help us think about this. It's in Romans 8. Look on the screen. Paul writes, and he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. That you and I, when we look out at the world and when we see the brokenness, when we feel the brokenness, there's a, a groaning that takes place. There's a knowledge that, man, this is not how it's supposed to be. Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're just exploring the faith, you know this isn't how it's supposed to be. You know, like, somebody's got to fix this. And that's what Jesus is experiencing and he's feeling. And so the the second thing that you can write down if if you want to take notes is this, that Jesus weeps over the curse of sin and death. That Jesus, when he sees sin and the effects that it has, that it ultimately leads to spiritual and physical death, he says, man, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Now, maybe you're asking if, if Jesus is so sad about it, why doesn't he do something about it? And we're going to learn in a minute that he has done something about it, and he is going to do something about it. But, but there's another practical application point that we can take from this. Jesus, in that moment, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible is actually the shortest verse in the Bible, and it's John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. Now, Jesus knew that he was going to bring Lazarus back to life, right? You guys with me? That he, he knew he was going to bring Lazarus back to life. And yet he still wept. Now here's why that's important. Sometimes as Christians, when we go through something challenging, or when a loved one is grieving, we, we feel the pressure to look, say something that kind of makes it all okay. So we're like, man, I'm, I'm fine. You know, I know it's sad that, that I lost someone, but God's still good. He's still on the throne. In the end, it's all going to be okay. And, and those statements are true, but... We must recognize that it's okay to grieve, and it's okay to be sad, and it's okay to process that this isn't how it's supposed to be. That's what Jesus did. Even for us, when we walk alongside someone who is grieving, here's what the scripture says in Romans chapter 12, it's on the screen, that we should rejoice with those who rejoice, and that we should weep with those who weep. So we shouldn't feel the pressure to say, oh, don't worry about it. Time heals all wounds or you're going to feel better after a little while or, or they're in a better place. I mean, those things are, are, are things that maybe sometimes we feel to say to fill the space. But ultimately what we're called to do is if they're weeping, we come alongside and grieve with them. That we carry that burden along with them. Jesus was going to make everything okay, but he still grieved alongside of his friends. Now, let's keep going. We're going to get to the good part. Verse 39, it says this, Take away the stone, Jesus said. And remember, Lazarus, he's laid in a cave. There's a stone over the entrance, much like the tomb where Jesus would be laid. But Lord, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, By this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Now, If you read the King James Version of this verse, Martha says, he's been there for four days and he stinketh. It's kind of fun. Verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, he's praying now, and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus, in this moment, he's praying and he's acknowledging to God that what I'm about to do is going to be a work of you. 
I'm not just doing this on my own, but I'm actually working on behalf of God. And then this is what happens. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So what started as a funeral ended with a miracle. That that Jesus actually stopped a funeral from happening and changed it into an incredible moment. What were the sisters, they're there and they're grieving and they feel like they've lost their brother forever. And Jesus, with one word, speaks Lazarus' name and he comes out of the grave. It's been said that it's a good thing that uh, he actually specified Lazarus because otherwise Jesus has so much power that everyone would have come out of the grave. (laughs) And so what we see here is that Jesus, and you can write this down, point number three, that Jesus moves mountains and raises the dead. Jesus can do anything. His authority spans so far even to raise the dead. Now, let me tell you why this moment is significant, why this miracle is significant. I'm going to use another story Jesus did, and I'm going to use that to illustrate why this is important. Think about the, the miracle of Jesus healing the man who was paralyzed. I'll tell you the story. Jesus was teaching in a home. The home was incredibly crowded, so much so that no one else could get in. And so the, these, these friends brought their friend who was paralyzed, and they carried him to Jesus on a mat. And their goal and intention was that, that they would get to Jesus, and Jesus would heal this man who was paralyzed. But because the house was so crowded, they couldn't get to him. And so they took him on the roof, and they did some light vandalism. They, they opened up the roof. They took some roof tiles off, and they lowered this man in front of Jesus on a mat. Now, if you see a paralyzed person in front of Jesus, it's pretty obvious what he needs. He needs, he needs to be healed. He needs his, his walking and his, his limbs restored. But Jesus says something weird. Jesus says to this man, he looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's really puzzled. They're like, what, what is he saying? And, and then after that, he says, get up and walk. Now, the reason is that, that Jesus is using the miracle to confirm something else in his, that's a reality. So if I come to you and I say, your sins are forgiven, I have the power to do it. Now that's crazy, but, but you really can't prove it one way or the other. How do you know visually whether or not I can forgive sins? You can't. But, but if I walk up to someone in a wheelchair and I say, get up and walk, it is very clear whether or not a miracle has happened, right? Either he can or he can't. And so what Jesus did is he used the miracle of the man walking to confirm a greater spiritual reality. I can heal people, and I also have the authority to forgive sins. Now let's think about Lazarus. Jesus calls Lazarus up, and he uses that to actually confirm a greater reality. And I'm gonna put it on the screen, John chapter five. This is Jesus talking about himself, and he says, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He says, don't be amazed at this. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So what Jesus is saying is that there will be a moment, and it will be a 
moment of judgment, judgment day. And on that day, everyone who has died, as well as those who have lived, will rise and they will be judged. Those who believe in Jesus will be sent to eternal life and those who do not believe in Jesus will be sent to judgment. Now this is a heavy truth. And so often people hear this truth and we don't want to believe it. And it's actually a little bit easy not to believe because right now, visibly, we can't prove that. Like what I just said, you can't confirm. It takes faith to believe that. And so Jesus doing this miracle, Lazarus raising from the dead, he has the authority to raise the dead, which proves this greater truth that he also has the authority when the end has come to judge the dead. And so what we need to realize practically for each and every single one of us is this, that we will stand before God one day. And the question on that day is, did you believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord? And it's so important that we believe in Jesus because that gives us forgiveness for our sins and that gives us eternal life. And so for some in this room who, who don't believe in Jesus and who would say, Brian, I'm not a Christian yet, I, I'm, I'm on the fence or I walked away, we need to understand, we need to get right before God. It's the most important thing possible that you can address and take care of. And, and the reason is because if you are not right with God, if you don't believe in Jesus, then the Bible says you are spiritually dead. And being spiritually dead, that's the bad news. But the good news is we just learned Jesus specializes in resurrection. We, we see this in Colossians chapter 2 that it says in Colossians 2, you were dead because of your sins and because of the sinful nature that was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. He called my name, and I ran out of that grave. Jesus, yeah, amen. We can, we can celebrate that. If you're a Christian, you're a miracle. You're walking with resurrection power in you because Jesus has brought you from death to life. And if you're not walking with Jesus, today is that day. Jesus is calling your name as well. All right, let's finish our story. Look with me at verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews had come to visit Mary, and they had seen what Jesus did, and they believed in him. But some of them went to the, priests, or to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Remember, at that time, the Jewish people were under Roman rule. And Rome ruled with a peaceful tyranny. In other words, they allowed the Jews to have certain freedoms, especially freedom to worship how they wanted, but that freedom was always kind of in a precarious position. If, if the Jews messed up, if they got out of line, Rome could come in and crush them and take away all freedom. And so the Jewish leaders were always concerned and were always trying to keep the peace because, well, two reasons. Number one, they wanted people to continue to worship. But number two, they wanted to stay in power. And so there was a bit of a selfish motive as well. And so they're worried if Jesus continues to do what he's doing, if he continues to, to grow in popularity and people start worshiping him, 
Well, what they're concerned about is, man, we're going to lose our power and we're going to lose our freedom to worship. And so they come up with a solution. It says in verse 49, one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, remember that he was the high priest, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now, this is really cool. Look at verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved publicly about among Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. Now, as we wrap up the story today, I just want to explain the significance of that. I want you to notice that Caiaphas comes up with a plan, and the plan is that Jesus, one man, will die instead of the whole nation perishing. Now, Caiaphas came up with a physical plan, but he didn't realize that God was working on a whole different spiritual dimension. And this is why. Caiaphas was the high priest. Every year, the high priest's responsibility was on the Day of Atonement to choose a goat to be sacrificed for the people. And the goat would actually be significant. In that sacrificial system at the time, under the Jewish law, the goat would be sacrificed and that would be representative of the sins of the people being covered. This is in Leviticus. It says, Aaron the high priest must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. There he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it, just as he did with the bull's blood. Through this process, notice, he will purify the most holy place and he will do the same thing for the entire tabernacle because of defiling sin and rebellion of the people. So we know that the Jewish people were under a sacrificial system and that sacrificial system was a placeholder until Jesus could be the ultimate sacrifice. But God was doing something powerful. But just like it was the high priest's responsibility to choose a sacrifice for the people, Caiaphas, unbeknownst to him, was choosing Jesus to be sacrificed not only for the people, but also for the world. And so you can write this down. This is the last point, that Jesus sacrificed himself to defeat sin and death. And so for every single person here who is a Christian, we are a recipient of Jesus' sacrifice. And for those who are not you need to understand this, that, that God is holy. God is loving. He loves every person here so much, but he's holy. And so he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. Sin must be judged. And so either we will pay for sin on our own, or we can accept the free offer that Jesus has already made, that he died to pay for our sins. All we have to do is receive the gift. As we close, I just want to share something for Christians, and then something for those who are not yet Christians. For those who are believers, you know, earlier in the message I talked to you and I encouraged us that Jesus comes alongside of us, he serves us, and that's what we've been learning about this entire time. So our response to that, I think, is found in Matthew six thirty three, where it says that we are called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Because God pursued us first. 
because God loved us first, because God served us first, we are called to seek him first and to place him as the priority in our lives. Now, it's actually a big act of faith to seek Jesus first. If you're in here and you are a small business owner or you work for yourself, you know that if you don't work, you don't get paid. And so the temptation is every morning to wake up and to say, the first thing that I got to do with my best energy is to seek, to, 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 to make sure that I can make money. If you're a student, you, you want to be successful, the, the temptation is the best energy that I have, let me give to my schoolwork. If you're a parent, the, the, the temptation is, man, I got to do all this stuff for my kids. I, I just, I need to make sure that, that they're taken care of. And it can go on and on and on. But what Jesus says is, I'm already promising to take care of you. I am providing for you. I am serving you. I am walking with you. And I'm inviting you to seek me first and to seek the kingdom first. And as you do that, the promise is this, that all these things will be added to you, that I will take care of you as you seek me. And that's my encouragement to us. Now, for those who are not Christians, I've already explained to you that Jesus died for our sins, and he invites you into a life of walking with him, where, yes, we serve him, but he serves us, and he walks with us as we were created to be in a life with God. And so let's pray. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this story. I thank you that for many in here, that our story is that you called our name and we ran out of that grave. And God, I pray for those now who have walked away from you or who are not Christians and now they want to become Christians. And I ask that they would receive the gift, the gift of Jesus who died on a cross for our sins, rose again to give us new life. If you're in here and today you sense that Jesus is calling out your name, that he's speaking to you, and that he wants to invite you into life with him, he wants to invite you to follow him and to pursue him, I just want to ask you right now, if you would, with every head bowed, with every eye closed, just to raise your hand in the air. There's nothing magical about raising your hand, but I think it's significant when, when we actually say, yes, that's me. I want Jesus to follow me. Yeah, that's awesome. I see you. Anybody else? I don't want to take long. I don't want to draw this out, but I do want to give anyone here an opportunity to respond and to say, yeah, that's me. Jesus is calling my name. If you've walked away or if this is even your first time becoming a Christian. For those who raise their hands, whether you're online or in this room, I want to invite you to pray with me. Just say, dear God, I know that I've walked away from you. I know that I was born far from you. But God, I want to walk with you. I know that I was made to walk with you. Thank you for Jesus dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for helping me to come into new life. I receive the gift of Jesus. Today, I've made alive. I moved from death to life. I was once blind and now I see. Help me to follow you. Help me to walk with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.